Okay. I'm ready to start this briefing. Oh, okay. But wait, where is my chief strategist, Steve Bannon? I can't start without Steve Bannon. He's walking in right now. Sorry, I'm late. It's okay, Steve. You look great. And live from New York, it's Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. Tonight we'll be discussing Season 42, Episode 8 of Saturday Night Live with host Emma Stone and musical guest Sean Mendez. I'm John Murray and joining me this week is Steve Finn. Steve is the host of Transparency on CHMR 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at TransparencyCHMR. And you can connect with us at SNLAfterParty.fm. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us to get the word out and they're greatly appreciated. All right. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Emma Stone. A few hours before last night's episode, they dropped the next two hosts and musical guests that are going to round out December. We're getting John Cena and Marin Morris on December 10th. And we're getting Casey Affleck and Chance the Rapper on December 17th. It's a great lineup. Uh, I did want to say on the aside, John, uh, I noticed in your show notes you have uh, Chance the Rapper written with a W. <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. Which is appropriate for the Christmas uh, Christmas episode, but I don't think he's that kind of rapper. No, I think that is an autocorrect issue. Uh, I'd like to say that I do genuinely understand the difference between wrapping paper and hip hop music. So, you know, <laughs> please don't hold that against me. What about these two hosts are we looking forward to? You know, John Cena is on everyone's radar, whether or not they're wrestling fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, you know, dabbled in some acting, some action as well as comedy. Uh, a lot of people uh, were introduced to him through Trainwreck the Amy Schumer, Judd Apatow um, feature film. That's right. Yeah. I thought he did really well in that. And uh, yeah, he had a, a more substantial role than people expected and he, he did well with it. Right. Yeah. I'm looking forward to him. He's going to be a great host. He's got some comedy chops, but this uh, Casey Affleck hosting uh, the, the Christmas episode, the last episode before new year's. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, how do we feel about that? That's an interesting pick. eh? Normally they want to bring in a ringer, right? The Christmas episodes, usually one of their bigger ones of the year, lots of cameos. A lot of time it's an alum that hosts or a friend of the show, someone who they really know is going to be a big draw. And this year it seems like we're, we're going in a completely different direction. Considering that the first half of season 42 has been kind of so, so star studded already we might be a little burnt out on that. So maybe they're just consciously trying to do something a little bit more modest or fresh. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Yeah. So that'll be fun to watch, see what they uh, come up with for the Christmas episode. All right. Now, before we get into the recap, we got a little bit of feedback. So Reddit user Schwark. (laughs) Schwark. Sure. Let's go with that. Uh, Says, So last week you were saying that you were getting kind of sick of Kate McKinnon's recurring cookie cutter sketches that she does with the host, namely Sheila Savage and Whiskers Are We. This week she got to do Debet Goldry, but I don't feel like she's adding any new characters. And now that she's not going to get to play Hillary Clinton as POTUS, that's president of the United States for the next four years, what do you think her future on the show looks like? I know that she's doing more than character work. She, along with AD and two of the writers, are writing most of those pre-tape music videos, but she's also in a few movies this year and next. Is she planning on leaving? I would be heartbroken, of course, but I just can't imagine that she's planning on staying on the show as long as Keenan, for example. Okay, so let's unpack that a bit. Is there any indication from the sketches that Kate's involved in now that she's stepping back from kind of being fully invested in the show and bringing all of her best kind of material and game to the show? And is that possibly an indication that she's starting to look for the door? Any thoughts? She might be a little bit disillusioned, you know, as a a member of the gay community, she probably, you know, took the results of the election to, to heart. So she might not be you know, in the best place emotionally these days. What I I have been noticing, you know, what Schwark uh, was saying that <laughs> the cookie cutter sketches are, are piling up. 
it's making a large chunk of what she's doing on the show now. Right. I think that might have to do with the fact that, you know, she's such a talented performer that no matter what you give her as material, she can spin it into comedy gold. So maybe the writers are getting used to that and know that they don't have to necessarily try as hard with the quality of writing Mm -hmm. because they're going to rely on Kate to just pick up the ball and run into the end zone with it. Yeah, there could be something to that. I think it's probably a little too soon to start assuming that maybe like the fallout from the election or kind of what that's doing to Saturday Night Live. I think it's too soon to make any conclusions about that in particular. I mean, sure, obviously we we saw from like the the Hillary Cold Open where she's doing the Leonard Cohen song that uh, Kate obviously she was very invested in the outcome of the election, but she's also a performer and she's got a thick skin and it's, it's not like, uh, somehow this has crippled her, you know, for the shows. I don't think there's, I don't think there's really any angle there per se. It might just not be quite as fun to do the show when kind of Trump content is going to be ever present for the next four years. But that aside, um, as far as her recurring characters and, Um, just the idea that the show's leaning on are really heavy. I think this is the result of her having been there for like 90% of her contract at this point, Um, having built a really deep bench of characters that can be relied on for laughs and her being recognized as one of the strongest performers on the show. So there's every good reason why the show is putting her front and center while they've got her, while they've got those characters and and while they know it's an easy win. So I I think that's all just kind of just the natural way that the show flows. The only other thing that I think I have to add to that topic is without getting into details, there is a, a general understanding around the show that it is not Kate's intention to be there past her contract. And that, you know, there's some obvious clues to that. The fact that she is taking film roles and that she's got prospects, right? If, (laughs) if she didn't have anything better to go to, that might not be the case, but it's been true for a while that Kate could launch from the show whenever she's ready. And the way I understand it, the expectation is that she will be heading out as soon as she's, you know, contractually free to do so. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Trump. So since he hates SNL with a passion, he watches it religiously every week, obviously. And then he immediately turns to Twitter to bash the show. I don't understand the reasoning. I can't understand why anyone would stay up that late if they weren't enjoying the show. But for whatever reason, Trump felt he had to comment on last night's episode. He said, just tried watching Saturday Night Live, unwatchable, totally biased, not funny. And the Baldwin impersonation just can't get any worse. Sad. Which, okay, so be it. Everyone gets an opinion. It's absurdly hyperbolic. Yeah, well, that's so out of character for Trump. But then um, (laughs) Alec Baldwin uh, replied. He said, uh, release your tax returns and I'll stop. Ha. (laughs) There's really not a whole lot here to discuss. I mean, this is more of the same from Trump. And I don't think anyone's naive about where Alec Baldwin's political leanings lie. So do we care that this weekly little escapade goes down on Twitter? Well, it's not going to make a difference. I don't think Trump is willing to release his tax returns for any mm-hmm. for any reason. Um, so I think Baldwin's pretty safe to put that out there and yeah. continue playing Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I'd do the same thing probably. Sure. But he does have a, a fair number of followers and they, they take what he says seriously. <laughs> it, it does probably hurt the show a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Here's the thing though. Anyone who's put off by Trump bashing or feeling like they need to defend Trump. They haven't been watching SNL for a long time. (laughs) So I don't think there's a lot of like right leaning middle America types that if they're put off by the humor that SNL has been leaning on are still watching the show. So I I don't think a lot of his base could really care about what's going on with SNL or or if they care, it's just, they hear about it after the fact and then they want to pile on the SNL hate, but I don't think they're watching the show. (laughs) But with that said, um, Trump tweeting and whatnot, That's a great segue into our episode recap. So why don't you take it from here? We have Trump uh, retweeting a a few uh, supporters. And in the context of the sketch, this is happening during a security briefing. And we're seeing Baldwin as Trump again. Are you surprised to see him again after he said that he wouldn't be doing it as often after the election? 
No, I'm not surprised because as long as the cold open is trying to hit Trump hard, I think Alec Baldwin's going to be game. I don't, I think if they came to him and said, we've got a great concept for a cold open and it's really, really flattering and it shows how great a leader (laughs) Trump is. I don't know if Alec Baldwin's going to show up for that, but right now they're probably having serious discussions about what their next move is with the Trump character on the show. Right. And Alec Baldwin is uh, a good enough sport that he is going to continue to play the support necessary until they can make that transition. I don't think anyone was expecting that he was really going to have to have much of a presence after the election, but these are the times that we're living in. And, and I think everyone's just rolling with it. So I'm, I'm not personally surprised. I would be surprised if he's still doing it by the end of the season. I think after Christmas, there's probably going to be a handoff. And if I had to write the sketch, it'd be the inauguration and Alec Baldwin would be the guy swearing in the new Trump. I think that's the classy way to go right there. Just like Fred Armisen did. Yeah, exactly. You do kind of a passing of the torch and Alec Baldwin can play any character. So some stuffy old white, you know, I don't know, Supreme Court justice or whoever it is that swears in the president. (laughs) I'm quite sure that Alec could do that. And then it's, it's a nice nod and uh, sort of a, an acceptance that the new Trump is coming in. I, I think that's how they should be doing it. Yeah. But as far as this cold open goes, I thought it really worked. And um, this is, you know, constantly what they do when it comes to Trump news and in terms of events that all they have to do is just tell you exactly what happened and it's comedy goal, just how it played out. Sure. So they're turning to the camera and, and assuring you, yeah, this, <laughs> this was something he actually did. Yep. When the truth is stranger than fiction, you don't have to dig too deep. I personally thought it was middle of the road, which isn't necessarily bad. I just didn't think there was anything really great or memorable about it. Uh, a few fun little jokes here or there, but it was pretty sparse uh, overall, I thought. Yep. And uh, not a whole lot brought to the table. I mean, even Kyle Mooney was basically just doing his Chandling character sure. for his uh, small appearance. Yeah. <laughs> I did notice they used a lot of uh, background sets just for this one cold open, which was uh, pretty involved for what it was. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit more complex as far as cutting away and having all the little side stories of the, of the date and the two teenagers on the couch. Like there was, there was a lot going on, but it wasn't that complicated because it was all stationary and it was just kind of like quick back and forth. Uh, I didn't think that helped though. Personally, I think you have to really know specifically about the people that were getting the retweets for those jokes to land, right? Cause they made each of them a caricature of the real person. That's why they were talking about what their avatar looks like. Or Vanessa Bear says the Bobby Moynihan looks just like his Twitter profile. So if you're only casually invested in the, the news story, I think a lot of that probably would go over your head. Yeah, maybe. Um, and, uh, Steve Bannon, he came out as basically the Green reaper. Yeah. I didn't think that worked. I didn't think it worked at all. Well, I thought it was going to go somewhere. Like apparently the whole gag was, Hey, Steve Bannon is the specter of death. Yeah. And that's, that's why it didn't work. It didn't work for me because there's a big story there if they wanted to latch onto it. And it just seemed either cheap or a last minute edit, or there was just some, something that just seemed unsatisfying about introducing Steve Bannon and then doing nothing with him other than a sight gag. Yeah. And, and the fact that it's drawn out, like he enters walks across the room, sits down. That takes up so much time for just Mm -hmm. a simple visual gag that it just didn't land properly. Yeah. So I had a problem with it for that reason. I wonder if there was some editing, you know, trying to pare it down a little bit and maybe there was a bit more to it in the the dress rehearsal version, but for what it was, I didn't feel like it was necessary. All right. So we get into the monologue. Emma Stone is uh, reminiscing on her past uh, two other times hosting She mentions that she never really had a high school experience, so Saturday Night Live was pretty much the closest thing. So we have this monologue that draws a lot of uh, parallels between the show and a high school experience. And uh, I thought it was fun. Did you you enjoy this, uh, this premise as much as I did? I enjoyed it. It was cute. I don't think it was like a top ranked monologue, but it was fun. It was fun. Uh, Anytime the host walks off the stage and does the little loop around kind of the backstage corridors and then emerges again. I always find that fun. Like just seeing the hallways for me is fun. But in this case, the the premise was fun because it it lets you put all the cast members into a cliche high school character and they get to play out these little bits. So each of those was fun. It was a little 
long for the amount of those goofs that they were able to bake into it. But overall, I thought it was a win. It was fun. I was, I was charmed by it, but not like super impressed. This wasn't groundbreaking. No, it wasn't. And, um, you know, even seeing the, the staples like Lincoln and, and the llama and all that, <laughs> right? you know, I always love seeing that, but come on, it's not going to be enough. Sure. One thing I did love was Bobby Moynihan's performance as the old high school flame. <laughs> yeah. I thought he really killed the, just the subtleties, you know, the very recognizable traits of that yep. uh, character trope. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that he fumbles the ball at the end <laughs> is a great reminder of who, who we actually, how we actually know uh, Bobby Moynihan, um, you know, as a persona. Yeah. We, he can't keep up that pretense for too long. <laughs> yeah. So I think they danced back and forth uh, over that thin line in an appropriate way. So mm-hmm. I felt it worked. Maybe I was a little bit more warm on it than you were. You know, last week um, when we were trying to figure out who the MVPs should be, I went off on a whole jag about Bobby Moynihan being the ultimate utility player right now on the show. And as I was watching this week's episode and this, this particular moment, I felt like it was another good example of just how kind of like precise and on point he always is. Even if he's not dominating the sketch, when he comes on and has something to offer, it always seems to land just right. And I felt like he found that character properly with the music cue of that song from The Breakfast Club, (laughs) all of it, like him, he really did figure out how to make the most of that moment. And I think it, again, is just an example of where his strengths lie on the show and why he's probably been there as long as he has now. So moving on, the first uh, sketch of the night, we got... Woodbridge High School Student Theater Showcase, a uh, recurring sketch that we've seen many times before. It still seems to be working for me for the time being. Um, <laughs> the improv joke <laughs> yep. was really relatable. I've I've actually performed against other teams in competitions that were pretty much this Mad Lib style, <laughs> where basically they do a sketch that does not change in the least other than these couple of elements <laughs> Yeah, where they just throw in that uh, that suggestion without any other change to the sketch. So <laughs> I thought that was really fun too, because to make that topic the most inconsequential statement in the sketch defeats the whole purpose of improv. And then on top of it, to actually use it totally inappropriately, where it doesn't even fit the sentence you're trying to wedge it into, it was yeah a, a very fun indication that these kids believe they are much better performers and much more informed and just much more capable <laughs> than they really are. Right. And that was a fun little um, switch up on the the formula that, that they've been using for the sketch in the past. And, and it helped make it not feel too played out for me either. I thought it was a win. I, I, as soon as I saw the title card leading into it, I thought, okay, I'm probably not going to enjoy this because I have a feeling it's going to be mostly out of steam. I did not walk away from it feeling that I felt like, yeah, this was as good an outing as most of them. Yeah. How about we move on to peach candle, the, uh, the music video. <laughs> How did we like this, uh, 80 style, you know, videotape quality visual representation they went for this time. I really liked it. I don't think they were shooting for eighties. I think they were shooting for mid nineties by the hairstyles and the, you know, the, the garb that everyone was in, but regardless, we're talking about a far enough in the past that it feels very out of touch and, and very awkward to look at people (laughs) in that era. Right. I thought it was great. I thought this is exactly what you would want. One of these like pre-tape music video things to be, you find a really good, um, touchstone, something that everyone can relate to. And then you, expand on that idea as far as the song will let you. And then you get out as soon as you've found all of the fun avenues to explore with that concept, you bring it to a head and get out. And I felt it was very satisfying. I felt it was well edited. I felt the lyrically, it was very smart and fun and the visual tone of it. Everything I felt worked really good. Yeah. I just love how they make these songs so epic (laughs) and, you know, passionate. Yeah. Yet the subject matter is just some kind of minor life observance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 80, 80 really kind of brought that home, right? They give her the big crescendo in the middle of the song where she's, you know, passionately belting out, <laughs> uh, as a, uh, sort of like adult contemporary diva. She, she was able to really kind of shine with what they gave her. Yep. Another win from the, uh, from the songwriters. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So we'll move on 
to uh, Sean's dream. A young student, played by Pete Davidson, happens to nod off while struggling with his math homework, and in a dream he has, uh, gets some help with uh, from the uh, the posters on his wall. <laughs> how'd you how'd you find this sketch? Was this uh, a win compared to everything else that we saw tonight? Maybe marginally. I felt like this was probably better on paper than it was in execution. I thought the concept was good that he's got all of his role models up on his wall and they all kind of come to life to help him get through this high school crisis. But like so many boys his age, he probably has a pinup from a Maxim magazine, you know, like a PG 13 rated like celebrity poster with suggestive props. Yes. With suggestive props. And that particular character has very little to offer <laughs> to, to serve the situation. Uh, I thought that that was a fun idea and I did like how they staged the set and had the real people kind of like in set in the frames. And I, there was a lot coming into it that I thought was smart. I just thought maybe it took a little too long to establish that premise, like where she's kind of the, the weak link in, in what the posters are trying to accomplish. And I just don't know if they were able to bring it to a really satisfying conclusion. So I, I enjoyed it for what it was, but I don't feel like this was the strongest one of the night. I just, I think this was very middle of the road in execution. Yeah. I think I agree with you there. The, the level of frustration rising from all the other right. wall posters that could have been escalated a little less gradually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was kind of the the fatal flaw there was they had to go around the circle so many times before you realize that they're getting even frustrated with her. They're just kind of like good sports with her and sort of writing off what she's saying for like the first couple of go rounds. So that could have been maybe tightened up a little. Yeah. So how would you fix that? I'm thinking maybe chop out one of those posters, keep it down to three instead of four. Maybe. Yeah, maybe there was some tightening they could have done there, but I liked each of the characters because it did seem very true to the different sort of things that a guy uh, like a kid his age would have up on their wall. Yeah, for sure. I I just think maybe maybe from the first time she speaks, everybody's shaking their heads and they're like trying to like get her disconnected from what they're trying to accomplish. Like if they focused more in on trying to kind of marginalize her and keep her at bay, then maybe they could have escalated it. And that frustration would have come across a little, you know, funnier, but, uh, I, I, I don't like being a like, uh, armchair, uh, sketch writer. <laughs> Cause I, I, I don't think that's, that's really fair to the writers to, to pick it apart at that level. Sometimes sketches play really well. And sometimes even if it's a funny idea that they come up with sometimes just, you throw it up on screen and for whatever reason, it just doesn't have the energy that you thought it would. And there's just no accounting for it. So in this case, I don't know really what would have made it better so much as I just felt like it just didn't have as much energy as some of the other stuff tonight, which was pretty solid. Yeah. Aside from that, I did want to give a a shout out to the writers for, you know, this technically ambitious sketch Mm -hmm. in times like these, they kind of act like, uh, like engineers in a way where they're kind of describing what this, what they need the set to do to the set designers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we need these posters to slide up and reveal the actual actors portraying those posters underneath. So, you know, set designers have to take that concept and actually make it work in real life. Right. They make it look so easy that a lot of people probably don't even realize, you know, how, how involved this kind of thing is. Sure. Yeah. If you're going to offer uh, commendation, then I'm going to offer a little bit of condemnation. <laughs> the writers when they were doing their example of an algebra question, when they were walking Pete through it, that wasn't algebra. That was basic addition. Yeah. <laughs> so, Save you had 10 hot dogs or five hot dogs. So at a, at a purely technical scholarly level that did not wash, but it, the, the sketch overall, it still had some fun moments and I didn't walk away from it frustrated. I just thought, okay, that was fun. I liked Emma Stone's performance, but it was a little, little shaky and just maybe not the, the high point of the night. Certainly not that, no. Okay, now we're getting into another short, uh, second one of the night. This one's called The Hunt for Hill. I guess this is a, a sneak preview of a new A&E docuseries <laughs> about the search of the elusive Hillary Rodham Clinton. Ooh. Did we enjoy seeing this, um, this staple character of Kate's pop up again? Yeah, I thought this worked really well. I think they're going to find it more and more difficult week over week to find another way to wedge Hillary back into the show. So I don't think we're going to see too many more of these, but 
I, I thought this was smart because first off the, the format of the show that they're, they're goofing on, uh, the way they presented that, the editing and then the visual style and just everything about it, uh, rang very true to those kind of shows like in search of Bigfoot or whatever, ancient UFOs or whatever it is, those kind of shows where they have almost like no material except two guys boringly walking through the woods and they have to somehow smash that together in a way that it feels exciting it was really neat that they were able to kind of recreate that feel as well as they did. Yeah. And it obviously worked because really the only thing people are seeing from Hillary right now are these selfies of people crossing paths with her, (laughs) you know, in the forest. So it, it actually was kind of neat that they picked up on that and thought that was kind of silly that you could, you would think of her as kind of just needing to, uh, disconnect from society and be elusive for a bit. And, and these people that are keep finding her and photographing her that maybe it's not welcome. <laughs> she just, <laughs> just let her be. There was a lot of fun little things that they were able to work into it. And I thought it worked really well. Yeah. I especially liked Beck Bennett's um, Hillary call. Yes. <laughs> Basically just, you know, mimicking her, her robotic disingenuous uh, laugh that she does. Yeah. It was really good. How'd you, uh, how'd, how'd you like Keenan as the, uh, taquito forest shaman? <laughs> he has a, a good native accent, like where he kind of holds his words and talks a little slower, Yeah, you know, like he, he found that and it was good and the dreadlocks and then the, like the, almost like I'm blind eyes that <laughs> it, it was fun. It was, it was totally unnecessary, but I'm glad that they figured out a way to put him in there and let him be goofy. Yeah. I also enjoyed how, you know, Hillary was not quite in focus and, and, you know, kind of, you know, off to the side, never centered on camera. She was very much a ghostly presence in this sketch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, it was just all put together so well and, and, um, came out successful in the end with what they shot and edited. Yep. They definitely got the tone just right. All right. Let's talk a bit about, uh, my boy, Sean Mendez or <laughs> musical guest. Are you a Sean Mendez fan, John? I am not in any way. And I say that a little pained because as a fellow Canadian, it feels like you should just blindly rally. <laughs> I respect him as a performer and a musician, and I have nothing bad to say about him, but I can just not, I, I can't get down with this kind of like teeny pop stuff. Okay. Yeah. These two songs, I mildly enjoy them. Not as much as I enjoyed. I think it was his first hit. It was Stitches. Okay. That came on and that was that was a pretty big hit. You know, it was on the charts for the better part of a year. That made me fall in love with him. Okay. I haven't I hadn't seen him in well, not literally, <laughs> but fell in love with his work. Sure. I'll say that. <laughs> but I hadn't I never seen any music videos or pictures of him. He didn't sound white to me. I thought this was a, a black okay. uh, artist. Yeah. He's got a soulful kind of sound at, at moments for sure. Yeah. And you know, I guess you don't have to be a certain color to sound a certain way. <laughs> That's a big breakthrough for you. I'm, I'm <laughs> proud that you've been able to come to that conclusion. I'm, I'm so much op- more open-minded <laughs> now. So I, I like him a little bit more than you, I guess. I don't find him totally teeny bopper. Ooh, yeah. I, I think I, I think I hit that a little too hard. I don't dislike him. There, I, I was not put off or, or pained in any way by the performance. His abilities are not in question and his vocals and even live, he's able to belt and, and do a lot of good stuff. So absolutely nothing bad to say about the guy. Just the genre of music that he's presenting here is just not for me. That's my only critique of it is I'm the wrong person to be deciding whether it's good or bad because I just don't connect with it. Yeah, fair enough. But you're right, and I'm happy that you're willing to admit that he is a talent. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that he that he's not really all that Bieberized, <laughs> yeah. which is a, a term I just invented. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he lets the performance speak for, his, for itself. He's not, you know, doing mic stand tricks or dancing around. Sure. You know, he's got some stage presence. He's got some flair, but he's concentrating on the music. I have a feeling if Usher had found him at like 10 or 11 years of age, we may have a different version of Sean Mendes at this point, but he does seem a little more grounded, uh, which is good. We don't need any more like star implosions that are bringing down the credibility of Ontario based uh, musical superstars. Yeah, true. This week's podcast is brought to you by Kodabi. If you haven't heard of Kodabi and you own an iPhone, listen up. 
Kadabe makes the absolute best cases and screen protectors for iPhone owners who want to fully protect their phones but can't stand thick, bulky, or gaudy cases. It's really easy for me to recommend Kadabe because I've been using Kadabe cases for years, long before they ever started supporting the podcast. I personally can't stand cases that make my phone look like a transformer. I don't want bedazzled backs, cheap accents, obnoxious branding, and any other tacky styling. I just want a tasteful, minimalist case that's as thin and light as possible while still ensuring that my phone will be truly protected from drops and scratches. And that's exactly what Kadabe delivers. They offer three types of cases for every iPhone model since the iPhone 5C. Their thinnest case, the Veil XT, is only 0.35 millimeters thick, completely covers the back and sides of the iPhone, and is so thin and unobtrusive that you will forget that you have a case on your phone at all. Plus, it makes your phone far less slippery to hold, and it is color matched to your phone's anodized aluminum. If you want to check out all of Kadabe's fantastic products for iPhone and iPad, just go to snlafterparty.fm and click their banner. Plus, the fine folks over at Kadabe are offering an incredible discount just for listeners of our podcast. Use coupon code SNL when checking out and save an extra 25% off your entire order. Again, click the Kodabe banner at snlafterparty.fm and use coupon code SNL to save 25%. And our thanks to Kodabe for supporting this episode of the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. So, getting back on track, let's get into the weekend update. How'd you find this uh, first string of jokes? It's still super Trump heavy, and I found that I wasn't enjoying that aspect of it as much. It it seems like they've officially decided that everything before the first feature is now going to be their political run. Yeah. And so because they've decided that that is the block of time that we're always going to give to the political stuff from here on out, that it's going to be inevitable that right now that is going to be all Trump. So I don't fault it, but I just, I just didn't need any Trump jokes right now. Just wasn't feeling it. It's been another week of very like, sort of like dark Trump related news where everybody's all up in arms over his cabinet appointments and whatnot. So I I just, to me, that wasn't fun, but I can't fault the jokes. It just right now, the word Trump just seems to be like a trigger for me. sends me into this depressing spiral. <laughs> so that wasn't super fun, but uh, like I said, I can't fault it. I just know that it's just not the jokes that I wanted to hear right now, at least for the opening salvo after Leslie Jones feature. I thought they got into some good jokes. Yeah. I must say I was kind of getting the sense that they were moving away from this, this format with the first block of political jokes seemed like they were kind of easing off in the last uh, episode or two, but mm-hmm. this, this was full force you know, the Trump block. Yeah. It'll just come down to how much they have to goof on, on any particular week, how long that opening stretch is going to be. And, uh, you know, this time I just, I feel like the writers were probably still a little bit up in arms with some of these new revelations. So I think they wanted to hit them hard. I feel very much like their intention with these Trump jokes is to be as, as hard hitting as possible. I think they want SNL to have as much of a voice as they can without it seeming like it's partisan, but I don't think there's any love for Trump at the show. And that comes out loud and clear in these kind of jokes. Right. I noticed they made a joke about, you know, Hillary's tacky looking headquarters <laughs> yep. for her campaign. They said that con- contributed to her loss. Was is, is this something I missed in the news? Was that actually something that was talked about? Oh, I don't think it was that deep a joke. I think they're just probably goofing on the idea that her campaign really dropped the ball, that they didn't see this coming at all. Like they were celebrating victory, you know, right up till about midnight on Tuesday. And she didn't have anyone savvy enough in her organization to get really good metrics and data and really get out ahead of the fact that Trump was coming back with a vengeance during those last couple of weeks. So I think it, I think it was just more of a, like Donald Trump owes her campaign a debt of gratitude that they dropped the ball so badly during the last couple of weeks of her campaign. Yeah, I guess. So we uh, we cut to Colin, and uh, he reports on a study that shows that women tend to experience a decrease in sexual satisfaction in relationships. <laughs> so who better to bring out than uh, the resident relationship expert, Leslie Jones? Mm-hmm. How did you think this one went? This was really good. This is one of her better ones. It wasn't too fumbly. It seemed like she was really just connecting and in tune with the material. Like it, it flowed really well. Uh, her and Joe both seemed very casual and the couple times where he sort of threw out a little bit of an ad lib or just kind of was goofing on what she was saying. She was rolling with it really well. So the, the rapport was good. The energy was good. The material was really good. Like this is, this is definitely Leslie's wheelhouse, right? If she can be talking about 
having 30 years in the game <laughs> and take it into some kind of like, like vulgar and, and, <laughs> and awkward subject matter. That's, that's where she's going to shine. And this was just a good vehicle for her. So I, I thought it played really well. I believe it did my salty oyster cracker. <laughs> yeah. Then even that was, was cute, right? Like, uh, Colin just like, you just call me a cracker and, <laughs> yeah. an edible cracker. So she even was able to put like a little naughty spin on top of it. It was just, it was fun. It was playful. There was just a lot of good stuff there. And, uh, the thing that she's getting good at when she's delivering her line, she did it the last time she was up and I've just noticed that she's leaning on it a bit more and it's working well is she's willing to take the time to throw a joke out there and like be really amused at herself and try and see if anyone in the audience likes the joke as much as she does. Like she kind of scans the audience and gives it a minute to see if it's like landing. And you can just kind of tell that kind of the gears are turning. Like she's, she's looking to lap up a little bit of attention or maybe some gasps from the audience. Like she's hoping for that. So you just, it's playful. Like this is part of her act. Like she's doing it intentionally to get a laugh, like by making people a little more uncomfortable. But when she pauses and gives those jokes a bit of time to land and is able to just kind of let that flow. I find that it's working really well. Those are times where her stand-up experience really becomes apparent. Yep. So she's she's totally in her in her element on weekend update. I really like the um the joke uh you know, if you say you're bringing a rack of ribs <laughs> and you bring me a small penis. I love how she just abandoned the analogy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you think she'd say oh you bring me like a riblet or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, it was, it was good. And it's intentionally by breaking the metaphor that makes that so funny because you're caught off guard. There's no way you'd think that she would just unveil the metaphor and say directly what she's referencing. That's, that's, that's just a fun little comedy structure. Uh, you, you don't get that much from her though. Like that's just a, from a song or a songwriting from a, uh, like a joke writing craft standpoint, it shows that she's got a little bit of versatility that it isn't always what you would get from someone who mainly came out of stand up as a backer. Yep. But it, it kind of fits because they did hire her as a writer first. So the packet that she submitted for sketches, they must have saw that there was some like some versatility and some talent yep. in what she could bring just as a writer. And it shows. And it's a good message that, you know, men should take to heart. <laughs> sure. You know, not everyone's going to be born with a baseball bat between their legs. This this is this is where we're taking the podcast today, Steve. <laughs> it's relevant to the subject matter, John. I wouldn't just you know, throw this around, you know, <laughs> I don't want you throwing anything around. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, um, no, I, th- I think, um, I think it was really good material. I think she executed it. Well, I thought everything flowed really good. And I think that this was the high point for weekend update. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So, um, after we say goodbye to Leslie, we get a couple of good jokes, not as, uh, not as politically centered. Mm hmm. Why don't we get uh, into Rachel from Friends, our our second contributor? Uh, I wasn't super impressed. I thought it was pretty lackluster. Yeah, and they uh, they relied on an old crutch they've used over and over. (laughs) The classic sneaker-upper. The classic sneaker-upper. We had the real Jennifer Aniston show up, and uh, as you would expect, she might have a a little bit of a problem with the uh, satirization of her um, classic character of of Rachel Green. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't work for me either. I mean, I do enjoy it when the real celebrity tries to do an impression <laughs> of the impression. Right. And they they exaggerate those certain aspects of themselves that are caricatured right. uh, for the impersonation. I've seen it work better. You know, it's no it's no George H.W. Bush saying nah, gah, da right. on <laughs> SNL back in the day or Bob Dole saying Bob Dole. <laughs> I think when the only goof you've got is the Rachel Green impression from Vanessa Bayer and you've already done that to death and you have absolutely nothing fresh to bring to it, it just means that you're only going to be able to take it so far. And the whole depth of the goof is going to be, oh, your impression is crazy. But then when I do it, it sounds exactly the same. So maybe your impression isn't that crazy. Like that's the, that's the whole thing in a nutshell, but it took a long time for them to get to that. So thinly veiled promo without any real fresh take on the characters. And I mean, how excited are we really to see Jennifer Aniston? <laughs> like, the, like, what is it that was a real win from this? I just, I can't put my finger on anything that I thought needed to be there. All right. Enough about that. Why don't we get into the cleaning crew Christmas show? <laughs> uh, the cleaning ladies of a office building, uh, 
have a, uh, a little performance that they've put together and they guilt the office employees uh, into uh, indulging them. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a little too much sexual overtone for the uh, for that corporate environment. <laughs> How do you think this played out? I, I thought it was great. I love it. Uh, there's been a lot to like overall with this episode, but I thought as far as one of their live sketches that this one really worked well. Like the pacing of it was good. The structure of it was good being able to find a few fresh reasons to keep revisiting the song without it feeling like labored. Uh, you know, they bring the kids in. So all of a sudden now the stakes are even higher that this guy's he's already got kind of like a, a testy ex wife that's scrutinizing his every move. And now he's looking like a bad parent in front of her. Like they're just, they, they, they found a lot of fun little things to work into it. And that, that allowed them to keep going back to a new song three times <laughs> yeah. and it not really weigh down the sketch. So I, I just thought, yeah, this was sharp. It was fun. Um, the songs were hilarious, right? Like taking Santa and, and turning him into a, a sexual miscreant. Like all that is just, uh, that, that is the, the kind of sketch that you want. Like take something that should be fun and innocent and make it a little dirty and then have everyone react. And just, the, it had all the components of a fun little one-off sketch. Oh, for sure. I don't know how I feel about Leslie in that role. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if Leslie was the best to be one of those three. I mean, you know, it was fun to see her try out an accent. I don't think she was overly successful. <laughs> you know, maybe it made it endearing for some. Maybe Did you find it cute in a way that to see her struggle with that accent? Or I didn't have any problem with Leslie in it. And maybe that's just because we don't set the same expectations for accents and performance from Leslie as we do for, say, like Cecily Strong. I just, I, I felt like the sketch couldn't really be ruined by that. I, I think the, the worse the accents were, the more fun it kind of becomes sometimes. The sketch, I felt really hung on how smart the reactions from the corporate players was. Yeah. Right. We, we already understand the goof that these are raunchy Christmas songs that culturally do not line up with what should be happening in an office. Whether Leslie fumbles a little bit or not, it doesn't ruin that. Once that's established, it all becomes about the back and forth between the corporate people. Yeah. All right. Excellent. How about we talk a little bit about a uh, panel featuring a recurring character from Kate Debet Goldry? Mm-hmm. This is, I believe, the second time we've uh, seen this uh, this sketch. Right, fourth if you count its uh, <laughs> its spiritual predecessor, the alien abduction lady. Yeah, that was going to be my first comment before you rolled right over it. Um, <laughs> that <laughs> this is a reinvention of alien abduction and out of body experience, because I think they realize they can't just keep using the exact same scenario over and over again, but they love Kate's ability to be the, the put upon person, the person with a completely different take than everyone else in the scene so that she can, she can tell her story and all the, the fun that falls out of that. So if they did two of the alien abduction type ones and they're doing two of the panel ones, I hope that they reinvent it again. Like I like the scenario. I like Kate being able to do what Kate does with this kind of material, but I don't want to see another, you know, women's round table. Yeah. And the fact that the, the subject matter of the interviews keeps being about, you know, a pay gap between actors and actresses. Like I'm sure there's other issues that they can touch on about women in film but they seem to stick with that. So that's not really helping with the recurring sketch, making it too similar to each other. Maybe it's just a thinly veiled critique at the show. Maybe, maybe someone isn't getting paid what they want and they're just going to keep pushing these on air because they know it's so funny that Lauren's going to green light it. Yeah. <laughs> whether, you know, whether it's maybe touching on some touchy matters or not, I don't know, but um, you're, you're right that this wasn't, they didn't take the concept further than they did last time, which is what indicates to me that it's probably time to put this particular scenario to bed and find a new wig for Kate for the next time they do it. Yeah. I want to say something positive to- because I want to uh, compliment the makeup department. Her neck waddle. <laughs> for Yes, her, her old person turkey neck yeah. was on fleek for sure. Yes, it was on fleek. As the kids say. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. It was really well done. Yeah, it, it was so convincing that it was almost disturbing to see Kate, who we know is a, a relatively young person, to look that convincingly aged. Mm-hmm. Um, are we even going to mention that Jennifer Aniston was present for the whole thing? Oh, is that who that was? I couldn't recognize her under all that plastic surgery. Speaking of old people. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. You know, I would rather these actresses age gracefully. I don't think there's anything wrong with natural aging. 
you, you know, you get to a point where you're trying to stave that off and then all of a sudden you can't move your face other than your lips and your eyelids. And mm-hmm. it's, it's eerie. It's like you're looking at an animatronic model. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, whatever We're, we can't, we can't really bag on Jennifer Aniston too much. And it's just, it's, it's sad. It's sad. Like there is, uh, something dignified about aging gracefully and, and embracing yeah. that. And as two young white guys, we're totally, you know, <laughs> totally the right people to be commenting on this. So, uh, I just feel bad. I feel bad when I see it. I like people to just have the confidence to be able to be who they are, but she also wants to work. And unfortunately she doesn't work in an industry that's necessarily going to be in lockstep with those kind of values. So. Anyways. Right. So you can't really blame her, can you? It's uh, it's almost, you know, the 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 climate that she has to she just has to play cards with these people. So Yeah. It's sad when you see it, especially the irony of it being in this particular sketch where the the overarching theme is, uh, you know, women in media and uh how they, you know, have certain struggles, especially, you know, with their appearance and mm. being sexualized and all the all the other stuff that they they touch on in it. It is just kind of ironic that we have a, an example of of some of the failings of of our culture on display while we're watching this sketch that's supposed to be a send up of it. All right, and uh, a final short film. The Fisher-Price Wells for Sensitive Boys, Hmm. Uh, a special toy for the introspective type of child like our boy Spencer here. I thought this was great. It was. How about you? It was, it was fantastic. The, the concept was so spot on, right? Like you, we all know, we all have whatever the nephew or the cousiners, there's someone that we can, can, uh, paint in these terms of, of the sad or the introspective or the sensitive child that would rather be off on his own reflecting and, and (laughs) being sullen or whatever. That's just so fun. So fun that they thought of that and realized where the joke was and found it. Yeah. And picking up on those subtleties too, and, and portraying them like the fact that he won't respond to his, his father, but (laughs) the mother who is probably more in tune with her emotions understands the child. So they have a special bond that the father just can't understand. Yeah. All that was in there. And it's very true to these types of situations. Mm -hmm. This is the type of kid I was. Okay. Well, I don't know if you want to be admitting that there was a little bit of a sense of he's a mama's boy. Like maybe some of her overbearing nature helped craft him into this sensitive little delicate flower that he is. Yeah. You can see the way that she speaks for him. He's like, yeah, he wants to go back to his well. Yeah. And again, he only responds to his mom. Like she's the hero and the dad's the villain. And, um, also at the end when a kid comes out and just innocently can't really relate to the boy, uh, she just like jumps right down his throat. You, you get a sense that, oh, okay, I, I understand why this kid is the way he is. Yeah. Not, you know, not that there's anything wrong with being a sensitive child or, or that you need to have a crazy parent to put you in that position. But in this case, they were showing that she's definitely exacerbating the situation by, <laughs> by her own, uh, craziness. Uh, so yeah, I like that. I like that the characters were, were fleshed out again, Bobby Moynihan for my money. He had a little moment in this, a subtle little wince, right? He looks over at the kid. The kid is putting his secret in the well and he doesn't quite understand what's going on. And his wife explains it to him. And you can just kind of tell that just a little part of him died at that moment. Like <laughs> this is not a son that I'll ever be able to pass a baseball with, right? Like there's just certain things that he'll never get from his relationship with his son. And it all just kind of like landed on him at that moment. And, uh, he took it all in with just a, a, a subtle little wince <laughs> and, uh, I loved it. Uh, Bobby Moynihan, he's my guy right now. Yeah. Like you said last week, this is the kind of stuff that you love the most from Bobby. Yeah. This is what he's bringing to the show. And it's so important that it's there because a pre-tape like this needs those little beats. It just needs, you need to be able to elevate it so that it doesn't get flat or stale or boring before you have a chance to exit it and fully explore it. So he's the kind of glue that holds these things together in a lot of ways. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Enough about the well. Uh, let's get into our 10 to one sketch. It's, uh, the nativity scene that we all know and love. Mm-hmm. This takes a, an angle on it that we might not have considered before. Uh, Mary and Joseph receiving all these guests. Maybe Mary wasn't <laughs> feeling like she was looking her best after going through labor and giving birth in a burn. Sure. Something I never considered for, but I think <laughs> they got a point here. What do you think? Yeah, no, it was, it was fun because we, uh, we do, we take it for granted that, uh, like that traditional narrative of the three wise men and the shepherds and everyone showing up right away. Well, 
anyone who's given birth or, or been involved in that knows, no, no, this is no time for visitors. Like just please, <laughs> this is recovery time. This is just quiet time. And yeah, the, to think it's playing out with, with the husband just completely misunderstanding his wife's cues. Like he's, he's just so quick to like invite in the company and just want to like have fun with it that he's oblivious to his wife's needs in this situation. That was a fun take on both characters. And it was very, very true that, yeah, this would be the last time or the the last point in time when someone who just given birth would want to see anybody at all, yeah. let alone have to like be on and serve drinks and like play hostess. That's <laughs> that, that would be so burdensome that, yeah, great goof that again, you find something very true that hasn't been explored and you can send it up this, this like quickly and smartly. Another win as surprising for a 10 to one to, for me to feel like it was well-rounded end to end. Yeah. To get visitors after giving birth, it's one thing you're in the hospital and it's your immediate family, Mm -hmm. but they've never met these people. They're all traveling from afar to, to see this baby. So this is the first impression kind of thing for all these people showing up. And, uh, I try to empathize, but you know. You and I, as men, we don't have to deal with makeup. We just make sure we're clean and we don't smell. And and even then, <laughs> even then, yes, we're no. You're you're absolutely right. Yeah, like uh, like Mary said as much. Like I I'm a mess here. Like I just th- this is not the time. I can't pull myself together. And he's like, it doesn't really matter. She's like, well, it matters to me. That's very the the sad thing is I've had this conversation with my wife where like you know the boys call and they want to come over or whatever, and I'm like, hey, yeah, can I you know is, is it a good time for the guys to come over? And she can very quickly list all the reasons why that would be inappropriate and burdensome to her. (laughs) And that isn't always the deciding factor because sometimes a guy is maybe a little bit more preoccupied with what he wants in the moment than his wife. So it is funny that they found all of that. Yeah. The thing is, 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 you know, they did make an effort, like they put some hay in her hair and (laughs) they made her look a little more plain, but it was still the beautiful Emma Stone. Sure. You know, even the way she looked, I wouldn't kick her out of the manger for sure. (laughs) And again, <laughs> it falls right off the cliff. <laughs> uh, so why don't we talk a little bit about the moment of the night? What took it for you? I'm giving it to Bobby for my moment of the night for his little ball fumble. Okay. And it's not just the performance of the fumble, but how convincingly he did the uh, the high school jock stud character and then broke that immersion with uh, that quick shift into into Bobby Moynihan persona. Okay. You know, it was, it was so simply stated and, and just worked so well, you know, it, it just hit a home run with such little seeming, such little seeming effort. That's fair. I had two thoughts that were in the running. Um, one was when the janitors rip off their smocks and have their dance performance clothing on and, and start their first musical number. There was a, there was a whole story that you realize when they do that, that, that this is a big deal to them. Like that, this has been like three months in the making that they wanted to create this special little (laughs) showcase for, uh, their, whatever their corporate overlords. (laughs) That was my first thought. But then when I saw Bobby Moynihan wince and the whole, like the, the depth of the characterization that they were able to achieve in that last pre-tape about the, the Fisher price. Well, I just thought that was so perfectly realized by Bobby Moynihan that I got to give it to him. So I think we're both saying Bobby had some really good moments tonight. Go Bobby. Okay. So best overall sketch. I want to give it to the wells for sensitive boys Okay. as the sketch of the night, just because it was relatable. (laughs) It's a good observational comedy that works. You know, Bobby Moynihan's father character, Trying to trying to make sense of <laughs> of this enigma of a child he's he's fathered, and uh, yeah, even like you know the way they went forward with it with the the other toys in that line of products like the broken mirror, it was yeah it was great. Yep, I I just thought it was a well produced sketch. So that's my my pick. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I I thought that was really strong too. I'm giving it to Leslie Jones Weekend Update feature. I think if we were just going to like distill down what got the most and heaviest laughs per minute kind of a thing, that bit was really strong. It seemed like the audience was really into it. It's some of the better material that she's brought to the desk uh, this season and 
you know, maybe even a good chunk of last season. There, there, it was a real compact, fun, laugh heavy win. Yeah. And I was kind of considering that one as well. It was a toss up mm-hmm. between those two. So I'm glad you picked that. Yeah. And you know what? I probably wouldn't have gone with it if you hadn't have chosen the Fisher Price Wells one, because I thought that that was brilliant too. All right. Once again, we're on the same page. Yep. MVP. Keenan Thompson. Okay. Explain. You know, he had hit home runs with everything he was uh, pitched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty much everything that he showed up in was was one of my favorite parts of, of every sketch he was involved with. So that's why I'm giving it to Keenan. Yeah, that's fair. I'm going to give it to Leslie. So often our critique with Leslie is that when you put her in a live sketch, she's not really comfortable and she doesn't have the seasoned performance chops to be, you know, on her mark and hit her cues and not be an obvious line reader. There's always a little bit of fumbliness. However, tonight it seemed like she was pretty strong. She had a prominent role in the, uh, the cleaners holiday showcase thing and even though you felt that maybe that wasn't the best casting, I felt that she kept pace with the other women and was a strong part of that sketch. The thing that I think puts it over the top is that end to end everything she was in, uh, she was really good in particularly that weekend update piece. That is one of those things that reinforces why she is such a force on the show and why when she comes out and is able to kind of take control of the audience that she can really take them on a ride. Just her, just her looking at them. You know, just her, no costumes, no nothing between her and the audience. When she's able to pull them in and have something really fun to talk about, she can just, she can just drive that. And, uh, that was great to see. I'm glad to see her do something really strong and also not be in any way weak in the other stuff that she's being utilized in the show. So I felt that that showed a lot of growth and consistency, which is always what we're hoping to see more of from Leslie. Yeah, totally. Just a real professional in the field of comedy. And she, she really proved that this week. So good pick on you. Yeah. On a scale of classic, great, typical week or train wreck, how would you rate this episode? Well, I would almost give it a great. So I'm giving it like a high end typical. <laughs> okay. It's, but, uh, but you're falling on the, the, if there's a line, you're falling on the typical side of the line, just to be clear. Yeah. And even a middle of the road typical is still good because SNL is a quality show. Right. So typical of a quality show is going to be a quality episode. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly why I've structured it like that. You just hit the nail on the head. So for our audience who might be confused as to why you'd use such a lackluster term like typical to describe a solid show, I don't want us to be quick to call everything great. And I also want to make the distinction that typical is not bad. You know, SNL is a good show. So if they have a typical show where it just fires end to end and you walk away feeling satisfied, I want us to understand that that is a category on its own and that great needs to be something even higher above that and then classic higher even still. So I I want most of our reviews to fall in that typical range because we both agree that generally speaking, the show taken as a whole is a good show. So a typical outing should be something that we walk away satisfied from. So this was just a solid outing for SNL end to end, and that is a win in and of itself. So I'm giving it a solid typical as well. Um, well, I think that's a pretty, uh, solid breakdown. Anything else worth talking about before we get out of here? I don't think so. Okay. Well, that's a cast. Thanks to my guest, Steve Finn. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. And thank you also to Kadabe. If you'd like to support our podcast, please consider using and bookmarking our Amazon and other affiliate links found at snlafterparty.fm. It costs you absolutely nothing to use our affiliate links when shopping online, but it helps us in covering our expenses and we really appreciate it. We'll be back in one week when SNL returns with host John Cena and musical guest Marin Morris. This has been episode number eight of the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. to Sean Mendez, Alec Baldwin, Morn, the whole cast and crew. This is my favorite place in the world. Thank you so much.
up Santa, get out of my bed It's time to deliver those presents I know you want to go again But it's time to deliver those presents Santa, no! What did I say? Put on your pants and get back in your sleigh Santa, 